Red light therapy is an incredible way for you to uplevel your health and wellness. I recently had the opportunity to interview the co-founders of Cala Red Light, and I learned a ton about red light therapy. It helps with improving cognitive function. It's good for your skin health. It helps you get better sleep. It combats anxiety and depression. It reduces inflammation in the body. It increases your libido. It boosts your energy, stimulates hair growth, and more. You have to check out the interview I did with Landon and Cameron, the co-founders of this incredible product, and learn more about them and why they designed this red light therapy device. Right now, they are giving Balance Your Life podcast listeners 10% off site-wide when you use code Balance by Megan, all one word at checkout. That's 10% off site wide any of the products online when you use code Balance by Megan at checkout. Welcome to Balance Your Life podcast. My name is Megan Farrell and I am the host of the show. This podcast is designed to inspire and empower you to start and maintain your own wellness journey so you can become the best version of yourself. Let's begin. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Balance Your Life Podcast. I am your host, Megan Farrell-Gordon. Today, we have an episode that is all about overeating and binge eating. Even if you don't necessarily identify with doing either of these things, but maybe you have like a an addiction to like sweets or chocolates or anything salty, you're going to gain a lot of value from this podcast episode in how to curb that addiction feeling and to stop doing that if that is your goal. So this week on the podcast... I am joined by Glenn Livingston, PhD. Glenn is a veteran psychologist and was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. You may have seen his or his company's previous work, theories, and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Indiana Star-Ledger, the NY Daily News, American Demographics, and more. You may have also heard him on ABC, WGN, and CBS Radio or UPN TV. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. On this episode, we talk about his own personal weight loss journey, how the food industry creates an addiction for us by designing foods we crave but providing no real nutritional value, and how to rewire your brain so you stop overeating and binge eating. We also discuss tangible tips to losing weight and controlling overeating, how parents can help their children develop healthy eating habits, and lifestyle tips that will contribute to being healthier, plus so much more. This was a fun episode, and Dr. Glenn Livingston does have a free gift for you at the end of this podcast episode, so you are definitely going to want to listen to the very end. You're going to love it, and then you can go ahead and grab his free offering. 
I am all about health and wellness, but sometimes it can feel overwhelming. I like to make things simple and streamlined, which is why I love using Energy Bits algae tablets in my daily life. I'm already making my daily smoothie and adding a handful of these tablets takes no time at all and it packs a huge health punch. Not only is it good for detoxing the body by helping to remove toxins, but it's high in chlorophyll, which helps to build your immune system. It's good for anti-aging and nourishing the body with 40 vitamins and minerals. It's high in antioxidants. It's good for your heart, bone, and skin health. It reduces inflammation in the body with omega-3 fats. It's non-GMO, organic, zero sugar, vegan, and keto. Energy Bits is giving all Balance Your Life podcast listeners 20% off when you use code MEGAN at checkout on any of their products online. I like the Vitality Bits by them because it's both chlorella and spirulina. I feel like I'm getting the best of both worlds. But you can choose from a variety of options depending on your needs and your wants. Use code MEGAN, M-E-G-H-A-N, at checkout for 20% off of your order. Enjoy! Welcome to the show, Dr. Glenn Livingston. I'm so excited to have you on. I'm so excited to be here, Megan. I've been looking forward to this all week. If you could give a little bio of who you are and where in the world you are currently joining us from today. (laughs) I don't always know where in the world I I am, but um, I do know who I am. I'm a psychologist by training, originally in uh, child and family psychology. I was married for 28 years to a woman who traveled for business, so I had time for a second career. And that second career was consulting for industry, uh, mostly in advertising research. I, I was on the wrong side of the war. I was helping big food and big pharma do some things that I don't really feel proud of at this time in my life, and I'm trying to make up for it. Um, we can talk more about that. But you know, I think most importantly for our purposes today is that I'm someone who had a very serious eating problem. I was almost 300 pounds at one point, and my triglycerides were over a thousand, and the doctors were screaming at me, and I had all kinds of other medical issues. Yeah, because when I was a kid, I'm, I'm six four. I'm genetically lucky. I'm modestly muscular, um, just without doing anything about it. And so, if I worked out for a couple hours a day, I discovered when I was an adolescent, I could just eat whatever I wanted to. You know, multiple pizzas, boxes of muffins, boxes of chocolate bars. What? Whatever wasn't nailed down. And if you if you were at the Woodbury Country Deli in the 90s at some point and they were out of pizza or Pop-Tarts, I was probably there before you. It it was um the food problem I tried to solve with a traditional psychological career. When I got a little older, it caught up to me because I couldn't work out that much because I was busy seeing patients and commuting and but I the food had a hold in me and I I went a very traditional route where I tried to love myself then, you know, coming from a family of 17 psychotherapists, you'd think, well, must have a hole in my heart. And if I could fill that hole, then I don't have to fill the hole in my stomach. And I went to, you know, the best psychologists and psychiatrists. And um, I went to Overeaters Anonymous and went to all kinds of spiritual pursuits. And I learned an awful lot about myself in the process. What would happen is it would work for a little bit, and then I'd get fatter than I was before I started. So a little better, a lot worse, a little better, a lot worse. Until, um, you know, sometime in my early 40s, I'm 58 now, but sometime in my early 40s, I discovered several things that made me flip the paradigm. 
and I, I stopped trying to love my inner wounded child and I kind of took control like the alpha wolf of my own mind. That's the best way I could put it. What caused me to change the paradigm was that I was doing all this consulting for big food and I saw them spending billions of dollars on rocket scientists that would be engineering this hyper palatable concentration of starch and sugar and salt and oil and excitotoxins. And, and it was all aimed at the lizard brain, at the reptilian brain, to hit the bliss point without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied, right? And the result of that is addiction. And, and every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or container, there is some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the back. And maybe that's an exaggeration, but I mean, I could tell you some stories, not really. And I say, well, that's an outside force. That has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, my mama didn't love me enough or she dropped me on my head and my mother, her mother dropped her on her head or something. There's not, nothing about my ancestry or psychological upbringing that really has to do with what's happening in the food industry. It's an outside powerful force. The advertising industry was no better. They were particularly good at making things appear to be nutritious and, you know, hit the evolutionary buttons of what we needed. Like, I remember a major food bar manufacturer executives told me the most profitable thing that they ever did was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into the packaging instead, because the vitamins made the bar taste bad and they were expensive. And they figured out that they could make the packaging multicolored and vibrant and diverse, which in nature would signal a diversity of available micronutrients, would say, you know, eat the rainbow, but on this package, they were actually taking the vitamins out of it. And that was kind of iconic for what was going on across the industry. And that had nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me or she dropped me on my head, right? And so I kind of stopped looking for that. And I said, well, the last thing I know about all this is that the reptilian brain seems to be the root of the problem. It's like activating this emergency response system as if we were in a feast and famine situation. And it throws out all my best laid plans. And I said, well, from what I know of neurology, the reptilian brain doesn't know love. The reptilian brain looks at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? It's like a bad college drinking game, eat, mate, or kill, right? <laughs> and so it's it's the mammalian brain that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have on the people that you love, on your tribe? And then it's the neocortex, the human brain on top of that, that says, before you eat meat or kill that thing, what about the person you're trying to become? What about your contributions to society? What about your art, your spirituality, and music, and love, and all those things that make us uniquely human? So here I am spending decades trying to solve the problem, which is a reptilian brain problem, with love, when the reptilian brain doesn't know love. So I flipped the paradigm, and I did something kind of embarrassing, which was stimulated by a book I read called Rational Recovery. He's this guy who works with alcoholics and drug addicts who really focuses on the reptilian versus the, the higher brain. And I said, I'm going to take control of my reptilian brain by being entirely sure when I'm about to cross a line. So I'd made very clear lines. Like, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again was one of my first lines, right? Um, because I was forever... You know, reading a diet book on Saturday and Sunday and then starting Monday morning and then Monday afternoon, I was in line at Starbucks and there's this little voice in my head that said, oh, come on, Glenn, you worked out hard enough and you can start your silly diet tomorrow. It'll be just as easy. And I would say, you know what? That's not me. 
That voice is not me. That's my reptilian brain. I'm going to call it my inner pig. I shouldn't have called it that. I should have called it a food monster or something, but it was just me. I was not going to publish that. I was not trying to be a famous diet doctor. I was, it was just me and my journals and my private thoughts to recover. So I called it my inner pig. And I said, if I'm in Starbucks and I hear this little voice that says, it's just as easy to start tomorrow. You worked out hard enough. Go ahead and forget your silly diet and start again tomorrow. Well, that's my inner pig. Chocolate on a weekday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as crazy as that sounds, I'm really condensing this so you can ask your questions. As crazy as that sounds, it would give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up and make the right decision. Not that I did that all the time immediately, but it cut through all the confusion. It's like I was no longer trying to heal my lizard brain with love. Now I could take control. I knew that it was awake. And I said, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, I don't listen to farm animals. I don't let, I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I could make the right decision. And from there, it was a matter of learning more about how to get out of the reptilian brain and into my human self. There are some breathing techniques and some writing techniques that helped me with that. And then adjusting the rules to be something that I could and would comply with so that I, you know, I could be healthy. And, um, you know, I, I got, um, I got thin over a couple of years keeping a journal. If the pig said it, it was just as easy to start tomorrow, I'd say, wait a minute. By the principle of neuroplasticity, what fires together wires together. So if you have a craving and you indulge it, that craving is going to be stronger tomorrow, as will the words that came just before the indulgence, by the way. So just start tomorrow and then you have a piece of chocolate makes it more likely that tomorrow you're going to say just start tomorrow. So you cycle downward. So you can only ever use the present moment to be healthy. So I would did that. I did that. I kept a, a diary about it for about eight years. And when I was getting divorced in 2015, 2016, I um, turned it into a book. I was a minor partner in a publishing company already. And so I got a little bit of, you know, priority uh, advice and marketing. And um, now we have a million and a half readers or so who don't recognize me by name, but they'll point at me in a bookstore and say, pig guy. That's the pig guy. So <laughs> that that's who I am. That's who I am. And I know it sounds crazy, but there's a lot more to it. No, I love all of that. I actually really like what you said too, about the idea of, I think it's one thing people don't really think about. They automatically assume it's a, like you were saying, like a love problem with themselves. If they're either not eat, like if they're bulimic or anorexic or on the extreme, like an overeater, overeating, but I think there's that missing piece that, that you picked up where like the food industry is really made to make us crave certain things. And once we get it, it's it's an addiction. Like you're never satisfied with just one piece of chocolate. It's got to be the whole bar. And then it's got to be, you know, boxes of it or more candy and more candy. And I think that's a really key point to point out to people that like yes you have to be the person who stops that cycle and addiction but the industry is made to keep us addicted that's how they make their money that's that's how they make their money and what the public wants for the most part is not necessarily healthy food what they really want is plausible deniability Mm -hmm. They want a rationalization for believing that they're eating healthy so if these potato chips are made with avocado oil then they must be okay. That I'm not going to have the regular potato chips. I'm going to have the ones made with avocado oil, ignoring the fact that there are 
know, uh, fried oil is still not good for you. And, you know, roasting most carbohydrates will create acrylamides that are carcinogenic. And, and, you know, I think, I think we have the right to freedom of food choice in our, in our culture and you can eat what you want to. And most of my clients don't give up these things. They just learn how to moderate them. But, um, I think it's important not to fool yourself. You, you, you can't really tell yourself that a potato chip is healthy. Okay. And most people also don't understand the real nature of emotional eating. They, they think that the emotions, the emotional conflict causes the overeating. And they don't understand that there's an intervening factor of justification. Because if you've made a commitment at a time when you were in your upper brain and, you know, had the time and sense to um, use your best thinking and, you know, make a solemn commitment to stick with this, then to break that commitment requires some type of justification. Otherwise, you experience what we call cognitive dissonance and it's, it's psychologically uncomfortable. And so you have an opportunity to sever the link between emotions and overeating by disempowering that faulty logic, those justifications, like saying, you know, just start tomorrow isn't really accurate. You can only use the present moment to be healthy. That's an example of disempowering it. What people also don't understand about emotional overeating is that it's not just emotions stimulating overeating, but overeating stimulates emotions. If you're very anxious before you go to bed, a lot of people tell me they can't get to sleep without overeating. Well, the Excess food does have an anesthetic effect on the anxiety because the nervous system has difficulty um, conducting the emotions when the digestive system is overloaded. So there is a kind of quote-unquote numbing effect. That's not all that's going on because the things that people are overeating are these artificial concentrations of calories and, and hyperstimulants that don't exist in nature. It's kind of like a drug. And so also what people are doing is eating to get high with food. and we could study the physiological impact of anxiety. When someone is anxious, their heart beats a little higher, their blood pressure is a little higher, their galvanic skin response goes up, they're, they perspire, they breathe a little more quickly. And if you look at animal studies where animals are given sugar rewards when they experience those physiological components, like a group of baboons was rewarded with sugar every time that it demonstrated that they demonstrated higher blood pressure those animals learn to produce higher blood pressure overall. So you can measure them the next day. They're going to have higher blood pressure than the group that wasn't rewarded with sugar for having higher blood pressure. The implication we think of that is that if you're anxious and you overeat, you get a temporary escape, a temporary escape from the anxiety. You're actually training your body to produce that physiological sensation more often. So it might be that the anxiety is not nearly as bad as you think and that it would extinguish fairly quickly if you stop reinforcing it with food. It's incredible to me that uh, both good and bad, like the body is, to- it's, it's completely miraculous and it learns the things, good or bad, that it can get a response from. And, you know, it, it's smart in that way. I mean, it's not good for you and it's not healthy, but it's learned that if we do this thing, we get this thing, it will re- alleviate this or give us this type of high because that's exactly what it is. It's a high. Be- because resources were scarce in the environment that we evolved in, 
mm-hmm. right? Like it wasn't always easy to find calories in nutrition. So our systems have evolved to be hyper-focused on finding calories or nutrition. Um, most of the things people binge on are caloric, but not nutritious. And so it leaves an additional hunger. But we're finally attuned to find concentrated sources of calories. So, th- so the brain wakes up and says, let me get me some more of that. And how did I get it last time? Let me do it again. So if someone realizes that they are overeating just by the way that they physically look or they've been told by the a, a doctor, like you are overweight, you need to lose some weight. What do you believe is that first step to starting to recognize that or stop the overeating because there's also you know this new year's resolution in january people are like i'm gonna lose 50 pounds i'm gonna do this thing i'm gonna go all in and then they fall off because it's almost like they're trying to do too many things at once Mm -hmm. do you believe that is the way to go or is there like i suggest we're doing this one step first and that will become like a domino effect into leading a healthier life yeah there's a lot to your question that's a very astute question most overeaters are also really good dieters. So they live their life with regards to food by the old nursery rhyme, which says, when she was good, she was very, very good. When she was bad, she was hard. Remember that? People go through these periods where they try to be very, 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 very good to undo the damage from when they were hard. And they're on this feast and famine roller coaster, up and down and up and down and up and down. And it doesn't work. It actually gets worse over time. It's part of the addictive cycle. So what you need to do, unless your doctor says there's some urgent need to lose weight, is separate the weight loss phase from the getting control phase. What's most important if you want to take care of yourself with food is that you're capable of making intellectual decisions about food and sticking to them. That's what's most important in, in my experience. So I tell people to start with one simple rule. Like don't, don't, you got to go to kindergarten before you go to college. So what's one, what's one simple thing you could and would do that would prove that you're in control, not your pig or not your food monster, that would be easy for you to do so that it's not going to feel too burdensome or too scary or too depriving. Yet, you know, it would point you in the right direction. And it's amazing to me that everybody seems to know what this is for them. Some people will say, you know, if I just put my fork down between bites, I'd be okay. Other people will say, I remember this trucker said, um, you know, I have to eat three meals a day at truck stops, so I can't give up fast food, but I'll tell you what, I won't go back for seconds. Uh, n- another person says, I'm always going to take a picture of my food before I eat it. Other people will say, like me, I'll never have, you know, chocolate on a weekday. Some people will say, I won't eat after seven o'clock at night. Or I won't eat after seven o'clock at night with the exception of steamed unsauced vegetables or, you know, tea with stevia or something like that. And, and, um, pick one simple rule. The moment that you commit to it, you're going to separate your thoughts into constructive versus destructive. There's going to be the part of you that wants to stay with it. And immediately when you commit to it, this other part is going to get active and say, Oh, that's a silly rule. It's going to come up with all sorts of reasons to, for you to break your silly rule. It's going to be, you worked out hard enough today, you're not going to gain any weight, right? Or um, maybe it's not a good enough rule. Maybe you should only have chocolate on Wednesdays and not just on the weekends. Or, you know, 
maybe you'll never be able to follow this because you could never follow anything before. You've tried a million different roles and you never stuck to it. So obviously you're broken. You're pathetic. You can't do this. You might as well just go ahead and binge, right? You're going to hear all these thoughts in your head, which you previously thought were you, and you're now going to separate from and consider them to be part of your pig. We call it a squeal. That's a pig squeal. Any thought, feeling, impulse, or image that suggests you're going to break the rule that you made. Okay. May may I go on because there's more to this? Now you have a mechanism for identifying when the reptilian brain has been awakened. When you're, that's when you're in trouble, when the reptilian brain is awake, because it wants to, physiologically, it wants to overthrow your rational thinking and get, you know, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt, that kind of thing. So now when you hear one of those squeals, you say, okay, that's my pig. I know I, there's some pig activity. I got to do something. So the first thing you do is you take a breath in. For the count of seven, you take a breath out for the count of 11. You're going to breathe out longer than you breathe in. Um, you could actually do two or three of those if possible. The reason that's helpful, it's designed to stimulate your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of you that says it's okay to rest and digest because there are no emergencies here. If you were being chased by a hungry bear, you couldn't breathe out for longer than you breathe in. You'd be going, Right? So if you're breathing out for longer than you're, than you're breathing in, there are obviously no hungry bears in sight. This is an okay time to rest and digest. You're, you're moving the battlefield. You're getting out of your sympathetic emergency response system that says you're going to starve if you don't eat this and into your, everything's cool, bro. It, it's all cool. You're, you're going to be okay. Okay. Once you start to feel a little bit calmer, then I want you to take out your phone or something to write with a pa- paper and pencil. You'd have to carry it around with you if you're going to do that. And I want you to write down why the pig says you should eat this specifically. You've been really good all week. You deserve a day off despite your silly role, right? Go ahead and have it even though it's a Thursday. Okay, you write that down. There are a couple of things that happen. First of all, the act of writing is an upper brain activity, right? You could not be writing if you were being chased by a hungry bear either. So this further solidifies you into the upper brain. The act of writing it down makes really clear to you that this is something that your pig is saying, not you. It's an artificial distinction, but you want to really stick to it. Then you take another 7-Eleven breath. Just make sure you're centered and say, why is the pig wrong? It's, this is not a debate. This is, this is more like an operation. Like you're the doctor, you're putting the pig on the operating table and you're going to expose its cancerous logic and cut it out. You're, you're going to get rid of the cancerous logic. So the pig says, well, you failed a million times before. How many times are you going to try some stupid rule and then, you know, break it on Monday Monday afternoon? And at that point, you say, why is it wrong? Well, it's wrong because no matter how long I'm on a highway, I could drive on a highway for a thousand miles without taking an exit. I can still take the next one, right? What We have the ability to remake ourselves and the human learning process is one of trial and error. Like if you want to learn how to hit the bullseye of an archery target, you're probably going to miss a whole bunch of times before you can hit it steadily. Think about how children learn how to walk. They fall down and get up and fall down and get up and fall down and get up. We would never tell them, you know, you're pathetic, just stay down. You've fallen down so many times before, just crawl the rest of your life. Don't even get me started on toilet training, right? Uh, (laughs) So the human learning process 
is one of trial and error. It actually turns out that when you look at the research on this, the people who lose weight and keep it off for five years or more differ from the people who don't primarily and the number of attempts they have behind them. The people who lose weight and keep it off have more attempts behind them, not less. So it turns out that the path to success really does go through failure. And what your pig is pointing out by saying you failed a million times before is that you have the resilience and fortitude to do what winners do. You know, fall down seven times, get up eight is the Japanese proverb. I think that's how it goes, or maybe it's six and then seven, right? Oh, the name of the game is staying in the game until you win the game. You get up until you stay up, stay in the game until you win the game. So what I've done there is I've really gone to town and the idea that, you know, because I failed a million times before means, means I can't do it now. Right. So I am, I am eradicating the pig's cancerous logic. Then you take a breath and you say, well, how would staying on my plant, staying with my one simple rule, how would that make me a happier, better person? Well, you know, if I stay with this, I'm probably not going to have to worry about inflammation and joint pain the way that I was. Right. I, I'm going to eventually get thin and be able to climb mountains or play with my grandkids or do my yoga workout or, you know, whatever it is that I, that I love to do. I'm going to feel my full mobility and my full presence. I'll be more, I'll be more emotionally present because when you're binging, you can't really be thinking about a lot of other things. I won't be thinking about how to recover from it. Instead, I can work on this project or, you know, kiss my boyfriend or, you know, play with my daughter or, or, you know, hug my dog, whatever it is. There's this whole long list of, list of reasons that you can be happy about in the moment because you're not binging. And then you move on. You might want to write some of this down because your pig will try to use it again and you'll be better prepared to do it faster. And the pig will say that no matter what you do, it's going to come up with a million different reasons and a million different cravings. It doesn't really work like that. Again, because the brain is efficient. It's the thing that you were saying before, Megan, that the brain wants to find calories. So yes, it's going to scream and cry for those calories that it was getting in an inappropriate place before for a while. But, you know, for a daily habit, that's probably 30 to 60 days. And it doesn't go straight down, by the way. There's like a honeymoon period and then it throws a couple of tantrums and then it goes down a lot and then it throws a mini tantrum and then it kind of goes away. When I, I eventually give up chocolate altogether, and I remember the first month was a little bit of torture, especially in the beginning. By the end of the month, I don't have an occasional craving, but I knew I could beat it. By the end of like three months, I kind of forgot what chocolate was. I, I would, you know, stand and look at the, my favorite chocolate bar at, at um, Shaw's supermarket in New Hampshire. And I would think, why did I ever want this? It looks like a big, bu- big bag of chemicals to me. Now, after years and years and years, I feel like you could pour my bathtub full of chocolate and throw me in it. And I still wouldn't open my mouth because I just, I'm really happy to have become a person who doesn't eat chocolate. I don't have to think about it. I don't even have that rule anymore. I just became someone who doesn't eat it. So that, that's how the process works. You know, there are other pieces and parts of it if you want to unpack it, but um, that, that's what I recommend. Start with one simple rule. Don't worry about losing weight for the first few weeks. Worry about getting control. And then if you're not losing weight, most people do lose a little weight anyway, because it, the feeling of empowerment is um, is inspiring and they eat a little better because of that. But if you're not losing weight, then look at your food plan, add another rule or two that will try to minimize the empty calories and add more whole foods. That's usually what does it. 
not necessarily dropping your calories, but switching out empty calories for more whole foods. And that's, that's usually where we go with that. Yeah. I love what you said about the idea too, of being very specific about the person and what it is that they need to kind of, I guess, work on. I think there's sometimes this idea of like, well, if you just cut out refined sugars, or if you stop doing this, like there's like, do this and this will happen. But everybody is different. And some people, it's not necessarily like a refined sugar, but they eat three heaping platefuls of dinner at a time. So, you know, instead of three, it's cut down to two and then two to one, or, you know, maybe it's, I just, I love the idea of making very specific to the person as opposed to like a one heart and die rule. Yes. And then it's, I mean, I think it's like anything, whether it's food related or fitness or entrepreneurship, it's, you know, all these limiting beliefs will come up and we all have kind of proof, I guess, of how these limiting beliefs like, yeah, no, I haven't been able to do this diet before. And it's proving that that's not the case and that there is that you can, I guess, you're, you're, do it you're, more you're, or less. you're replacing a failure identity yeah. with a success identity. Yeah. You're no longer asking, why can't I? Because when mm-hmm. you ask, why can't I? Your brain looks for reasons that you can't. You're asking, how can I? You're taking a simple step that proves that you can. And you're doing it on your own plan. Nobody's telling you what to eat. Our program is diet agnostic. You can, you could be, you know, whole foods plant-based like me, or you could be ketogenic or point counter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, You're deciding for yourself what you want to do. And as long as you're flooding your body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit, if you want to lose weight and you're not trying to starve yourself, or then you'll be okay. Then you can definitely recover. Yeah. And I think too, it looking at the more positive, and it doesn't have to be a massive thing, but I think sometimes we're so conditioned to look at what we're missing out on as opposed to you know, maybe you're starting to notice that you can go up a flight of stairs without breathing heavily. Like now you're actually getting up the flight of stairs and you've got a full breath going in. Like that is major for some people as opposed to looking at it as like such a want want type of situation or you're missing out on all these what, things. What kind, of, what kind of situation? Want want? A want want. Like I, like a, like a like a you're missing out like a FOMO type of situation. Oh oh, I see. Yeah. What? Well, it's um. And it's important to focus on non-scale victories. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are in a rush to lose a lot of weight, yeah. or even some people are in a rush to lose six or seven pounds. Um, but that always, almost always makes the problem worse. I always say the fastest way to lose weight is slowly. What, what you need to do is figure out how to love yourself before you've arrived and celebrate all of the non-scale victories. You know, what, what's your breathing like? What's your presence of mind like? Does your skin clear up? Do your joints ache less? You know, are you more present with your spouse or your kids? Are you able to enjoy nature more? Are you able to work better? You can keep a little journal with all the non-scale victories and that that pulls you forward. Yeah, that is one thing I think is really important to think about is I really hate when people come to me and they're like, I want to lose this amount of pounds in this amount of time. And it's like, because if you don't, you're just going to revert back to the same way and look at the positive things. Like I remember having a girlfriend come to me and wanting to lose weight by a certain day. And it was besides the fact I told her, like, we're not going to focus on that. We're not looking at that. You know, that's in the back of their mind. But every time it would be like, look how much 
stronger. Like you could barely hold a plank when we were first starting our yoga practice. And even if it's one breath cycle now, that's one breath cycle. You couldn't do that before. Like look at the more positive side of things rather than focusing on, I need to lose 50 pounds in three months. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if someone is, this is really great for somebody who, you know, maybe is a little bit older or an adult, but if someone is a parent and they want to get their kid kind of on the right track, where do you suggest a parent starts? Is it cutting out all types of sugar altogether? Is it kind of coaching your kid into like what is nutritious and healthy for them and kind of focusing on that? So we've started working on a book called Never Binge Again for Kids. Oh, nice. Okay. And I, ha- I haven't published it yet because we haven't totally figured it out. And I only like to publish when I know that something works, you know, at least 80% of the time. Um, I'll tell you what we know so far. First of all, if you are fighting with your kids about it, get, get out of the fight. You can force kids to comply when they're younger. It comes back to bite you later on, like like big time. And it it gets them all mixed up with proving their autonomy through food. And that confuses them about how to eat healthy later on. So you need to get out of the fight. You need to be a shining example of how you want them to eat. So, you know, Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. But very true for kids. Very true for kids. Everything that works with kids, a couple of things. One is if you're always looking for delicious healthy recipes like i think dr Furman has a recipe for a milkshake a chocolate milkshake which is made with spinach you, you won't believe me when i say it I'm like make a spinach and dates and um and i think some almond milk or something like that and you could not tell the difference between that and a chocolate milkshake and so the more you look for that and try to just bring it into the house and don't even tell them about it just you know treat it like a regular milkshake and you know, they have to work for it like they'd work for dessert in some other situation. The more that you're going to start to get healthy things into them without having a battle about it at all. And if there are inspirational characters, aspirational characters to which the children aspire, like if there's um, there's a show called American Ninja Warriors, and sometimes those people have YouTube channels and you can look at how they're training and eating and everything like that. And if you can get the kids involved with something like that, and how is this person going to do this week? And I wonder what they're eating. You have to screen this first because some of these people eat crazy. But but if they eat healthier or the way that you think is healthy, you want your kids to be more like that. You say, I want to show you this thing. We look, we can see how you know Jane is training for American Ninja Warriors. It was really cool. You don't even have to mention the food, but just watch it with them and say, Oh, that's so interesting. Look what they're eating. Kids respond to that. It's not a fight with mom and dad. It's not how they're supposed to be eating. It's, you know, I want to be a ninja warrior too. They, 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 they respond to that kind of thing. And, you know, recognize that it, your kids will probably lag six months to two years behind you as you are changing the way that you eat. Um, it has something to do with how your spouse eats also. Your spouse will probably lag six months to two years behind you too. Some spouses will never change. Most people tell me, I think there's something, I don't know, very pop psychology or fun about our approach because all of a sudden you're telling your spouse you have this pig inside you and they start laughing and they get curious about it. And so it, it catches on in most families. Um, I was surprised, I was surprised to the people who sell me produce, this, you know, nice Mexican couple here in Florida. 
they gave a copy of my book to their kids. And then the kids were actually fighting over the book at night saying who got to, who got to read it. <laughs> so, you know, you can, you can do that kind of thing, but, but mostly be the change you want to see in the world, be a shining example. Don't fight with people about it. Get better and better yourself. Your skin will start glowing. You'll have more energy. You'll be more loving to them. They'll start to notice. They'll want more of what you have. And that's, that's a better way to do it. Dr. Furman, F-U-H-R-M-A-N, he's got a book called Feeding Kids Right or something like that. And in it, he talks about having weekly meetings with kids. And I, I meant to go back and study that more. I think that's a good, like, like they have food and inventory planning meetings. What are we going to buy this week? Where are we going to get it? What healthy things are we going to buy? What treats are we going to buy? And they involve the kids in those discussions and ask them what they're thinking about it as a means to you know, start those conversations. So I haven't experimented with that yet myself with our people. We work mostly with adults, but yeah, that, those are the, it's the best advice I can give you about kids. No, I love it. It's, I, I think it's such great advice. And I think even if you think of it from like your own perspective, like kids are so malleable and they look up to you, like you're right there. You're the person who's supposed to be bringing them up and to be their, their role model. And I think even as like you're an individual yourself, if you're looking to someone to lose weight, you're not going to hire the person who's overweight and drinking sugary or even, you know, if, if you're trying to get financially stable, you don't hire the broke person who can't, you know, save a penny for their lives. You, you do the people who inspire you and who you strive to be like. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, nobody wants a fat trainer or a, a, bro- a broke financial advisor. Yeah, exactly. So what are some other things that you really think move the needle forward as far as your own health and wellness game? I know you were talking about from being you know, overweight to losing all this weight and working with the quote unquote, the voice in your head and trying to you know find all the positivity and rewire the brain essentially. Are there other things that you have done in your own life or that your clients have done that you feel have really helped improve your overall health and well-being? Well, part, part of it is attending to the regularity of your nutrition. Most people think that they eat healthy, but they don't really. And if they get to studying it a little bit more, they'll see that they're missing something critical. And so I think that they we don't provide nutritional advice, but I can't, you know, after having worked with almost 2,000 people, I have to say that the people who eat healthier um, as their regular diet, not their binging foods, but their regular diet, they seem to have an easier time stopping binging. And it's leading me to a hypothesis that part of binge eating and overeating is a micronutrient deficiency. So I can tell you, for example, when I was trying to get off chocolate entirely, I had the idea that every time I had a craving for chocolate, maybe there was some other physiological need that I had. Now, sometimes it could be a psychological need, sometimes just false hunger. But I said, what if my body authentically needs something and it's making a biological error in looking for the chocolate? And so I experimented with all these different kinds of smoothies. And I, I came up with um, bananas, kale juice, and celery. When I put those three things together, and I need like three or 400 calories worth of that, it would kill the craving. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't get high with food the same way that I did with chocolate. But it's like my body went, oh, and and the craving was gone, and the itch wasn't there, and I think thought I could do this. 
to the point where I felt like now I was just craving kale banana smoothies after a while. You know, and I've subsequently learned that it's all about getting off that feast and famine roller coaster and just regularly, reliably, consistently flooding your body with nutrition day in and day out. And the more you do that, like you can recall that process of disempowering the justifications, refutations. You can get as good as you want to at, at logical refutations, but if your body is starving, it's going to say you got to eat something. So your, your nutrition is what determines the, um, the volume of those cravings. It's a big part of what determines the volume of those cravings. So when you attend to the nutrition, it works very much in tandem with the refutation and never binge again methods. Sleep also has something to do with that, as does the number of decisions that you have to make over the course of the day. See, decision-making wears down your willpower, not just food decisions. We People eat more marshmallows when we make them do math problems before we offer them to them. There are studies that prove that. Doing math problems wears down your willpower. Answering email wears down your willpower because when you're answering every email you answer, you think, do I delete this? Do I spam it? Do I delegate it? Do I defer it? Do I do it right now? Do I contact my sister about it, right? Every single email, you're making decisions. So we find that if we can get people to take like two breaks a day, two decision-free breaks away, step out of the work environment, put down your phone, go walk outside for 10 minutes, five minutes if you can afford 10 minutes. If you have kids that are with you all the time, just go to the bathroom where maybe they'll hopefully leave you alone for a couple of minutes. It, you need those decision-free times to restore your willpower a little bit. Um, even better is to take an hour for a walk outside or go do yoga or meditate or, you know, take a shower or read a book or, or do something that feeds your soul while you're in those decision-free times. But you will find that the cravings are softer and easier to deal with the less decisions you have to make over the course of the day. This is one of the reasons that food rules work so well. We're, we're told in our culture, just eat well 90% of the time and indulge yourself 10% of the time. The problem with that is that you don't know which is the 10% and which is the 90%. Every time you're in Starbucks in front of a chocolate bar, you've got to make another chocolate decision. Whereas if you say only eat chocolate on Saturdays, then your chocolate decisions are made all week long. It alleviates the pressure on your willpower. The final thing I'll say is that um, there are some rules you can't make. If you make a set of rules that overly restrict your nutrition and calories, your body's going to force you to break them. Just like I can't say, I will never pee again. That I couldn't I couldn't enforce that rule because in six to 12 hours and probably sooner because I'm an old man, I, I my, my bladder is going to tell me otherwise. So yeah, that, those are the kind of things. For, and for me personally, I, um, you know, I've always had some type of a, active practice that is my centering point in life. Um, right now it's been, I do power vinyasa yoga in, in a hot studio when I go five, six days a week. And I live on the beach. So I also walk on the beach and semi jog on the beach, but, but I can tell whether I'm centered or not by how I do in yoga. Am I moving gracefully? Am I present with my breath? And it keeps me in a kind of a flow state. And I find that that extends through the course of the day as I'm following my rules and observing the pig chatter in my head, if there is any, observing what I'm thinking about. And, and am I in my reptilian brain? Am I in my higher self? So I put that all together. I get enough sleep, you know, got a girlfriend that I love and 
I, I work really hard on all these things to have a, a balanced life. But yeah, so those kind of things. I love that so much. And I, I want to stress too that I, I think people think it's an automatic, like as soon as you start your health and wellness game, like you have to do all of these things. And it's it's a process. It takes a little bit of time to find the things I think that works for you. I feel like you'd be so proud of me. My my quote unquote treat days are like Friday and Saturday too. And that used to drive people insane. They'd be like, well, what if there's like a birthday party? What if you're just feeling it on like a Tuesday? And for me, it used to be like, but now I have something to look forward to. Like Friday's the end of the work week when I was working corporate. It means I can have like dessert after dinner. And it's just, I look forward to it so much all week. And now I've gotten to a place of like, if it, there is a birthday on a Tuesday, like, yes, I will indulge in a piece of cake. But I've worked up to that point where like, there is no, I don't do that every single Tuesday. It's literally every once in a while, I'll get to that point and be like, okay, yes, it's my brother's birthday today. I will have a piece of cake with him. But I don't crave it either really as much. Like I'm very disciplined in saying like, if I'm, if I'm not feeling it, I won't have it. And, you know, I have my Friday or Saturday to look forward to for my treat night. <laughs> you know, J- Jim Rohn said that a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. Mm-hmm. And Peter McWilliams said, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. P- people are scared about discipline, but they don't realize because they're afraid they're going to be too deprived. That's mm-hmm. that's what they focus on, they feel too deprived. But they don't realize, first of all, that not disciplining yourself also creates deprivation. Janine Roth pointed out that if you, um, you know, if I don't eat the donut, I'm going to be deprived of the mouth taste and the feel and the calories and the excitement of eating the donut with my friends or something like that. But if I do eat the donut and I continue to eat donuts and I'm going to be deprived of feeling like a tall, thin man and a leader in the world and able to, you know, climb mountains and enjoy nature and be present with my girlfriend and my kid, I don't have kids, my, um, my, my clients. And yeah. sometimes I wish I had kids, <laughs> you know, so there are two types of deprivation. So you're choosing which one you want. But the other thing is that freedom sits on top of discipline, not opposed to it. So when I was younger, I wanted to be a jazz pianist and I practice scales like crazy. And I, I studied this, I took music theory. I studied the structure of music. What I really wanted to do was improvise my soul. I really wanted to be able to improvise better, but I couldn't do that without knowing the structure against which I was improvising. So it's, it's by knowing the scales and the structure of music that I could express my soul. When you get in your car and you can drive anywhere you want to across the whole state or the whole world, really, it's because of the discipline of the engineers that worked it out that when you turn the wheel, the steering wheel 30 degrees, that your wheels turn 30 degrees also, right? When you get on an airplane and you have the freedom to go to Los Angeles or Australia, you know, in a day in the modern world, it's because of the discipline of the engineers that built that airplane and the discipline of the architects and financiers and everybody that came together to make that project happen. Freedom sits on top of discipline, a lack of discipline. You're either going to be the master of your impulses and be able to direct your life or you're going to be the slave to your impulses and emotions and, and let them direct your life. Um, I think a good life, it's not like having a bunch of not Nazi food police in your head, but I think it's carefully choosing what disciplines you want to pursue and then subjugating your emotions, whims, and impulses 
to that discipline so you can accomplish what you want to accomplish. I, I'm, you know, I'm not really an uptake guy. I'm, I'm a pretty easygoing, laid back guy. Um, I can go with the flow. My friends want to go out. I can go out. I've, I've got a way of, you know, accommodating myself to any social situation, no matter how I'm eating at the time. But I've got my disciplines. You know, I'm only going to have dessert in certain days and I'm, you know, certain things I will never have again. I will never eat again. And I'm done harming my body and my soul so that other people don't feel guilty and they feel comfortable, right? If they, if they, I'll try to make them comfortable. I'll, I will, um, I'll just say, no, thank you. I'll, maybe I'll start by saying, well, I had a little too much at lunch. But, but, you know, if it comes down to it and they're pushing it, man, I, I'm done with anybody who doesn't want me to eat healthy. I'm, I'm just done. Yeah. Been, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, no more. I feel like I could keep talking to you all day about this, but I want to be mindful of your time. Before I send everybody to check out your book and to follow you online, is there a book, podcast, or resource besides your own <laughs> that has brought you incredible value that you want to leave with the audience? Um, I mean, I, I owe a tremendous debt of thanks to, to Rational Recovery. Jack Trampy wrote a book called Rational Recovery. And he's introduced the idea of bifurcating the brain into two parts and recovering from addiction by not perceiving it as a chronic, mysterious, progressive disease that nobody really understands um, and that there's no treatment for, but by understanding it as the real restoration of responsibility and free will by aggressively taking control of your own mind. And I had to make a lot of modifications to make it work for food. Um, that's when Never Been Again came to, to pass. But uh, I tell all my clients to read his work, R Rational Recovery. I love that. I would love if you could talk a little bit about your book, Never Binge Again. When, Where can everybody grab it? What's it about? What can people expect from it? Well, Never Binge Again was originally my journal. And it consisted of all the things that my pig would say to talk me out of my best laid plans. And what my response was to talk myself back into it. And when people read that part today, first of all, they say it's really funny. I didn't intend it to be funny. I tended to really beat my life's nemesis because this was the worst enemy that I ever had. It almost killed me. So I, I was not trying to be a comedian, but people said I was a comedian. They also say they felt like I was reading their diary to them mm -hmm. because having worked with almost 2000 people now, I can tell you that there are a limited number of pig squeals. Everybody thinks that their pig has this incredibly unique, powerful way of squealing. There are maybe three or four dozen squeals that collectively 2,000 people can come up with, and we've got answers for all of them. So it really does help to read through that and be prepared for what your pig might be saying. The, the book is found at neverbingeagain.com, and if you click the big red button and uh, sign up for the reader bonus list. We will get you, first of all, a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF form. Uh, we have over 15,000 reviews, by the way, on Amazon, which is more than the Da Vinci Code. Wow. So this really resonates with a lot of people. I, I don't say that so much to impress you as to impress upon you that you might actually get something from this. Um, you might hate it also. Some people hate it. I'm okay with that. So you get a free copy like that if you want the Audible or the the paperback version, there's a charge for that, reasonable charge. And then I want to give you two more things when you sign up for that. So hit the big red button, sign up for the reader bonus list, and we'll also give you a set of food plan starter templates, which are sets of rules you might consider depending upon what your dietary philosophy is, whether you're 
you know, whole foods plant-based like me or ketogenic or point counting or calorie counting or vegan or carnivore, wh- whatever you are, there are sets of rules you can consider, consider as starter templates, but you have to make them your own. I'm not taking responsibility for giving you a diet because I, I don't have that expertise. And also if I did, your pig would just say that doctor's diet is wrong. And, um, you know, we better keep binging until we find a good one. So the last thing I'll give you at Never Binge Again, click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonus, is a set of recorded full-length coaching sessions. The reason I do that is that this sounds really weird and crazy in the abstract. I know your readers are thinking, why does Megan have this doctor around with a pig inside of him? It's 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 kind of sounds like it's harsh or cruel or like we're calling people pigs. We're really not. And so I, I want you to listen to how this plays out in practice, and you'll see how we take people from feeling hopeless and powerless and despairing about ever overcoming their food problem to feeling hopeful and empowered and confident in just one session. Neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Perfect. I will make sure that everything is linked in the show notes. So you can just go right on there and click the button and follow along. Dr. Glenn Livingston, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been so enlightening. Thank you for having me, Megan. It was really nice to be here. If you love this podcast episode, spread the love by sharing this with your friends and family, share it out on social media, and don't forget to give it a five-star rating and review. From the bottom of my heart, I am so grateful that you are here. Until next time.